Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Okay, that was quite technical, I know. Um, And maybe that was not what you expected of today. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Um, But did it make sense? Great, good. Um, I've had some great questions from people during the break, um, uh, just about how I do my own quiet times, and do I do it like this every time, and (laughs) no is the answer, (laughs) and and, and different ways of reading the Bible, and... um, and, and let's just keep having these conversations. Um, don't necessarily... I know the temptation on a day like this is to keep the question to the break because you think I'm probably the only person in the room that thinks this. Actually, probably lots of us have the same questions. Um, and it's only when you hear another person articulate it, you think, oh, yes, someone else has done that. That's great. And so we can ask all sorts of questions. Um, I mean, the day is pretty packed in terms of what I planned. Um, but... I'm happy to drop things and answer particular questions. Or there may be questions I think, oh, we can't answer that today, but next, next term, why don't we do a session on that particularly? And um, I've got some ideas of where I'd like to go uh, with Theology Matters in the future, but if there are particular things that would help you, let me know and we can shape it around that. So do keep asking questions. Is this monthly? Sorry. Termly, yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we usually do yeah, one each term, three a year. Um, and we try and do a mixture of things. So today is quite practical in one sense because we're doing quite you know practical skills for how to apply to the whole bible um the last one i think we did on the trinity um the one before that we took the whole book of hebrews and tried to cover that in a day um so we try and do a mixture of things to help us grapple with various different bits of 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 faith um but i'm always open to suggestions of other things to copy uh, to copy to cover (laughs) other people's materials to rip off no uh, other things to cover um I was saying to someone earlier, uh, my daughter has this inbuilt ability to just know when I've got a whole day of teaching without me telling her and then just crying the whole night through. So I had about three and a half hours sleep last night. So (laughs) I'm pretty proud that I got through one session and that's the first time I've actually just used a totally irrelevant word. So (laughs) there may be more of those coming throughout the day. Um, Just keep feeding me coffee if I look like I'm going to fall over at any point. Okay, Um, so point one is exegesis. It's about working out what the text originally meant. And that can feel quite dry because it's doing some quite technical things. Um, And it may involve reading commentaries, but that's not the end of the journey, which is good because uh, otherwise the Christian life reading the Bible would be pretty boring. The next step, in fact, the next three steps are about them working out how we apply it to us so that it transforms our lives and we get the benefit of um, the word of God impacting us and making us more like Christ. And so we're going to get on to now working about what it means to us and how we cross the bridge from their world into ours. And this is now shifting from exegesis to the task of hermeneutics. But I just want to make a quick comment um, on passages that seem unclear. Um, there are one or two in the Bible. <laughs> um, there are lots of passages in the Bible that are challenging and that can seem unclear. And I just want to give a couple of notes on this. And um, we're not going to get into lots of examples, but... Um, just almost four principles um, that I find helpful when I come across something I don't really know what to do with. Um, And I'll go through these quite quickly, but we will illustrate them as they go through. First thing is to bear in mind that they may be unclear to us because they weren't written to us. (laughs) And um, 
kind of obvious point, but we may lack awareness of particular cultural events that the original heroes would have been totally like fine with. Um, we may lack oral teaching, which the readers have previously received. So sometimes we read it and we think, Paul, I wish you could elaborate more. But of course, Paul may have done a whole Theology Matters Day with the Corinthians on this issue. Um, and so he's able to just to refer to it in a sentence because he knows he's already taught them and we don't have access to that material. Sadly, they didn't put everything on YouTube. So uh, there may be more material that they had access to that made it make sense to them that we lack. Um, so, for example, um, in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 3 to 6, there's this bit where it talks about the man of lawlessness. And you read it and you're like, it's just a tiny little section. You think, what are you talking about? Like, this is really complex. I want to know more. But then Paul says, don't you remember when I was with you, I taught you about these things? You think, oh, well, I wasn't there. <laughs> so I'd like a bit more. But Actually, it's kind of relieving because Paul uh, may have talked for days on this stuff. And so, of course, they're going to understand it way more than I, I can. Of course, it's unclear to me because I wasn't there at the Corinthian seminar where he talked it, or Thessalonian seminar. Um, so, so sometimes it's just okay to be okay with the fact that we don't understand everything because it wasn't written to us. And um, there are still ways that we can come to an idea of what it means, but let's go easy on ourselves. Uh, secondly... I think we should work out what we can and what we cannot be certain about. Um, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Um, in fact, someone... Um, no, let me turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says... Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? Um, we are doing baptisms at Love London Sunday. I'm not planning to baptise anyone on behalf of the dead. Um, but when we get to this verse, you're suddenly like, hang on, what is this baptism on behalf of the dead? What, it's the only time it's mentioned in scripture. What is the deal there? And when you get to a verse like that, I think it's worth stopping and thinking, well, what can I be certain about and what can I not be certain about? Um, I don't think we can be certain about what exactly was going on. We don't know why they were doing it. We don't know who was doing it. We don't know if it was one or two people or if it was a widespread practice in the church. Um, but what we can be certain about is the reason why Paul mentioned it. Um, and so that's point three. Even if we can't be certain about the details, we can often still grasp the meaning. And I think just recognising I can't be certain about this because this is the only verse I have means that we should be cautious about building a massive doctrine on something we can't be certain about. And just going, I don't really know what the baptism on behalf of the dead is. I've got some ideas and I can read around it, but I don't really know. means that I'm not going to make a big deal of that. In my, like, this is not my life message, <laughs> how to be baptised on behalf of the dead, because I just can't be certain about it. But what I can be certain about is why Paul mentioned it, which is point three. We don't know what it means, but we know why Paul referred to it. He used it as a proof from experience in order to show the inconsistency between the Corinthians' beliefs and their practices. So he's not condoning it or condemning it, um, or even explaining what it is. But he says, there's something clearly wrong here, because you're like, hey, there's no resurrection from the dead. Why on earth are you bothering to do this thing? Clearly, there's a problem between your belief and your practice. So we know why Paul is saying it, even though we can't be certain about the exact details. And that's probably about as far as we can go with that. But then the fourth, th the fourth thing that we should do when we come across unclear things is consult good commentaries and stay humble. <laughs> and so check out the back page um, for recommended resources. And people email me all the time and ask, can you recommend a commentary on this book of the Bible? Like, 
I'm totally happy for you to do that. Liam at Christchurchlondon.org, email me, and uh, I will happily give you recommendations um, on things. And do ask people. Um, but don't be more certain than the text allows you to. And don't build rigid doctrines on uncertain texts. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over and against the other. When we go beyond what is written in scripture, we make things more certain than scripture itself allows us to. We can end up creating doctrines that divide us, that make us puffed up um, and we end up building new camps around unclear ideas. And you can go on the internet and Google and find all sorts of people who've got weird ministries based on random verses. And you think, how on earth did you get there? And it becomes divisive and it becomes strange. And um, we want to avoid being divisive or strange or puffed up. Um, so don't be more certain on things than scripture allows you to be. And don't go beyond what is written. How are you going to discern whether... Yeah, well, I think... Um, so that's why exegesis is so helpful, because you've got to be able to start off by saying, what can I know about this text and what it meant to its original hearers? So often when people um, uh, create massive doctrines out of a really random verse, um, what they've usually done is not done the hard work in terms of exegesis. They've actually then gone well, what can this apply to me? And just leapt straight to that without really wrestling with it. And if you then go back and say, well, what do you think this meant in this original context? Often they don't have answers. And there's your clue. Um, they've not really wrestled with it and got to the point where they say, well, there's not enough uh, detail for me to be certain about this. They've just leapt straight to application. So I'd say that when you're grappling with something um, that where application is, um, where people are applying things in a way that seems unusual or odd, um, I think the first thing to do is not argue over the application get right back to what do you think this text means um, and start arguing there but that means you have to be very very knowledgeable to compete with yeah yeah definitely yeah you do sadly <laughs> you are not so there is very little you can you know, put against the argument but why just want to like argue with someone if you don't have knowledge it doesn't make sense there are people base their arguments on certain kind of mm. passages in certain lines yeah. Well, so I think um, I think I'd say a few things. I think um, get, so if I am in relationship with someone, or there's someone in my, I mean, I'm in a slightly different position being a teacher in a church because people come to me with all sorts of things and ask my opinions on things, and so I'm expecting to have an opinion on things. Just being able to say I don't know is a discipline that I'm learning, um, and I may try it out a few times today. I don't know everything. Being okay with that is, is a challenge. Um, but I won't go out of my way to find people who disagree with me and then take down their arguments. Um, but if I'm talking to someone and they've clearly got a different view and I have a relationship, in the context of that relationship, I might want to say, well, I don't quite understand, but let's talk together, let's learn together. Um, but if someone has built some big ministry on something, I'm not going to go out of my way to find them and try and take down their arguments. I, um, not usually. Yeah, so there's all sorts of stuff that happens out there in the name of Christ that I wish wasn't there, but it's not my job to go and take it down. And actually what Paul says is um, that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And I often find that when I get into combative, argumentative mode, I find myself feeling more puffed up than loved up, if you see what I mean. And I, um, when I start to notice that in myself, I've got to then question my own 
what am I doing here? Am I doing the right thing? Um, yeah. Is there not a point where there's a difference between being puffed up and calling something out hmm. Yeah. Because one of the reasons I'm here today is that, mm. um, you know, if we look across Christendom and all the things that happened, our yeah. things being built out of ideas out of the Bible and the way that it's been yeah. read, there's some things that have got through, and there's some things that have mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when something is without fruit, mm. like, what are we doing as a church? Yeah. Calling these things out? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I think Paul calls things out. I mean, we've just seen him do it in gentle ways and pretty harsh ways. <laughs> and so um, we've got, and, and as pastor, teacher, shepherd, however, whatever biblical sort of category you, you want to use, I feel I have a duty to guard people and to lead people right and to say what I think is right and wrong and I might get that wrong from time to time. Uh, but I think it's important that we do say scripture says this and we need to interpret it this way and it means that this is wrong. Um, and so we need to do the good, the hard work of exegesis and helping to teach the whole church to think a particular way. Um, but it means that so I, so I think the church should be teaching like that, and hopefully we do, um, and maybe there are f- further we can go. And actually, there's so many things that we, <laughs> we should probably be teaching on that we haven't got round to yet as well. Um, but I think as an individual, um, if I then make my life all about rooting out negative things in other people, that's at the point where I find myself getting puffed up. When I find that I'm reading the Bible so I can tell other people they're wrong more than reading the Bible so I can find out what's deficient in my life and needs to change, and then I know I've tipped over from love to being puffed up. Um, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. yeah. But there's a place for rebuking as well, though. There's a place for... For rebuking, for kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, definitely, and there, there are times when I've definitely in preaching or conversations with people I've had to say I think that is that is wrong and you've twisted the word of God and I disagree with you and here's why um and and I will do that publicly when it's uh necessary and I do it one-on-one with people where I have relationship more easily (laughs) um but also what I want to do is not just say this is wrong and here's why I'd rather show people how they can read the word of God and get what I think is right. So I'd rather produce the, uh, present the positive rather than major on the negative. You see what I mean? Yeah. But this is where hermeneutics is so important. And exegesis, starting with what it meant originally um, and then getting to what it means to us is so important. Because, as I said, a text cannot mean to us what it never meant or couldn't have meant to the original hearers or the original author. And I think often when you see people applying texts in really weird ways and you think, is there any way that could have meant that to the original hero or the original author there really isn't and that just shows that they've done something they missed something in the step of uh, the interpretive journey so so let's move on to steps two and three um and i want to cover these what i'm going to do is i'm going to spell out steps two and three and um give you a few principles and then I'm basically I decided I was going to pick a difficult text to work through and then I got into it and I was like oh yeah this is too difficult (laughs) but at that point I was stuck so we're going to go through a difficult text and um uh I don't know why I picked this one but there we go um but hopefully it'll be helpful to you and I'll try not to trip up too much 
Step two, measure the width of the river to cross. Ask yourself, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? And some rivers, um, some gaps will be wider than others, depending on all sorts of things. Um, the passage that you're reading, where it comes in the Bible, um, where we are in the world. I mean, I'm talking to you as Londoners. <laughs> um, and the gap between us and some of the biblical passages may seem massive, but if I were talking to a group of people in Israel today, or in fact anywhere else in the world, the river may seem smaller or larger. So our cultural context right now may be different from the cultural context you find yourselves in in a year's time. And so asking yourself how big is the river is really important. And as we're going through a passage, note particular things that are different, that cause this river to be large or small. Things like culture. Culturally, are we in a similar or very different place? Language. I mean, obviously, we are reading an English translation, so language is somehow different, but the, the very particular words that people use, maybe they're words that we don't use that much these days. Note that and uh, recognise, OK, this makes the river a bit bigger to cross. Uh, time, um, as in, like what century, uh, but also where it fits within the story of scripture. Situation. Are we reading something that was written to a very particular situation that has never been repeated again? Um, or is it a situation that I think happens all the time, every year or you know, on a daily basis? That makes a huge difference as to the width of the river. And covenant, or place in redemption history, we'll come back to this in a moment, but um, where are we sitting in terms of, is this Old Testament, is this New Testament? Is this speaking to people before or after Christ? That makes a huge difference. And when you know all these differences, you get a sense of how big the river is to cross. And some of them you're like, oh, that's a pleasantly small river, I can take a, an easy step over that. And some of them you're like, man, that's barely a river, that's a sea, and that's, that's difficult. But just recognising that about a passage is really helpful, because it means that we don't treat them all the same. I don't come to a passage and think this will be easy and then suddenly get disheartened when I find it hard if I'm looking at a passage and I think well of course this is going to be hard because of x y and z the river is massive then I go a bit easier on myself or I know it's going to take longer or I'm going to need extra help to get across the river if you see what I mean so just for being easier on ourselves <laughs> step two is a really helpful one but step three is where I want to focus most of the time. What is the theological principle that bridges the gap between their world and ours? And I think there are some particular things to look for um, in the original situation and in our situation. Um, note similarities. And what you're going for here is not application, not immediately like, OK, they did this, therefore I should do this. Don't race to that. You're looking for the principle behind what was written and why it was written, because it is the principle that will make the bridge over the river so that you can then, step four, work out what it means to us. And if you try and race to the application without the principle, chances are we'll either think a lot of this is irrelevant or we'll end up with some rather wacky application. So focus on the theological principle. And a few guiding thoughts. The theological principle should be present in the passage. So it's not just something you've made up. Um, it should be present in the passage. Sometimes it's literally a phrase in the passage and you think, oh, okay, he's just spelled out this, this principle here. Take that, write it down, use that as your bridge. It should be timeless and not tied to a particular situation. So I'm looking for a principle that will apply whatever century you're in, even if it applies differently in the different centuries. It should be something that is timeless. It should be something that is not culturally bound. So I'm looking for a principle that will apply wherever in the world, wherever in history you find yourself. Again, even if the application is different in all those different settings. I'm looking for something that is consistent with the rest of scripture. So I don't want to look at a passage and go, ah, I think the theological principle is this, when the whole of the rest of scripture says, that's not true. <laughs> like, it's got to be consistent with scripture. And of course, that 
implies that we know scripture and of course we don't all know scripture downloaded to us like in the matrix in one go like we do this over time so uh, you may think I've got a principle and then years later you read a text and you're like, oh, I didn't realise that. And so this is a journey and we change and we grow. Uh, but we should be thinking about consistency with the rest of scripture. And it should be something that is relevant both to the original audience and to us. And essentially, if the first text of exegesis, you should be able to get to the, uh, the end of it and write a, uh, write a summary of the passage in the past tense. The aim of this one is to be able to write the theological principle or principles, there may be multiple ones in a passage, and write it in the present tense. So, for example, to serve God faithfully, we must X. That's the theological principle. You've not said, to serve God faithfully in my workplace on Tuesday morning, I must X. You've said, to serve God faithfully, we, humanity, at any point in history, must whatever it happens to be. And then we go to the application in step four. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, so um, this is what it meant. Um, and then the next bit was, therefore, I will do. And I'm saying, hold off, that's session four. Like, don't think, therefore, I will do until later in the day. Think, therefore, the principle is this. And uh, don't rush to application immediately. Um, we'll get there. So I'm sort of putting pause on that question, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Is this so well Yes. Overall, yes. For me as a believer, and yeah. then you come to the application for that later. Is that is that what? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. I think that's helpful. I've not heard it put like that implication application, but I think that's quite helpful. Um, what is the what is the principle? that has allowed this author to make this application for this audience. What's that principle? Um, and then the next stage is, how does that principle get applied wherever in the world, wherever in history I am? Um, which is a separate question. Uh, turn over the page, and I'll try and ground this. Um, <clears throat> Two simple hermeneutical rules. I've said one of these already. A text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or their readers. I, I, I say could have um, because once you get into application, my application could not have looked the same in certain sec settings because if my application is I must use my iPhone less, <laughs> that, that could never have meant the same there. But the principle about time management or addiction or whatever may be the same. So, um, so it's the principle we're looking for at this point, not the application. And, um, and when we narrow it really down to application, I think rather than just thinking about what's the principle, what's the guiding point here that is timeless and that crosses cultures, um, 
we can get into tricky places. Uh, a text cannot mean what it could never have meant to its author or their readers. And the second rule is this. When we share comparable particulars, <laughs> um, i.e. specific life situations with the first century hearers, we should assume that God's word to us is the same as God's word to them. So if you look at something and you think, oh, the river's not actually that big because my situation is literally exactly the same as that, then we shouldn't be thinking, well, let me find a different application. Like, if your situation is identical to... And this rarely happens because there are, the river is so big. But if your situation is near identical to something you find in Scripture, you should assume that what was written to them is the same to us. I think those are two good guiding principles. But here are four distinctions to bear in mind. One, a distinction between core things of scripture and peripheral things of scripture we must distinguish between the central core message of scripture and things that are perhaps more peripheral so um core items i think are things that if you deny them or question them you fundamentally undermine christianity um and i think in that category i would put things like the fallenness of humanity, Jesus' redemptive death, his resurrection, um, the return of Christ, the principle of love, all these sorts of things that run right through and you take those out and you don't really have Christianity anymore. Like, I don't think those are up for question. But there may be a whole bunch of things that are more peripheral, which is not to say they're unimportant. They could be very important. Uh, and of course, we can't always foresee the outworkings of our decisions either so something we may think is peripheral actually may be more fundamental than we tend to think but in that category there may be a whole load of things that are more um you know if we differ on them we may still be christians and <laughs> we may may still have the same faith so things like particular practices of um women cutting their hair yeah well i, I was just um I was just about to say a bunch of them, but I realised that as I say a bunch of them, you're all going to go, yeah, and what about that? So, <laughs> and, um, uh, but yeah, uh, hair cutting or um, uh, head coverings or greet one another with a holy kiss, which none of you did to me as you came in through the building. Like, why is that? Sorry? Greeting one another with a holy kiss or, um, uh, or even things like, or maybe a bit more contentious, but um, like, do, should we baptise babies or something like that, which I think is a very important thing, but... If you differ on that, does it undermine Christianity? Maybe not. So, um, so there's a distinction, perhaps, between core and peripheral. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a distinction sometimes to be made between moral and cultural things. We should look at how Scripture distinguishes between the things that are inherently moral and relevant for all cultures, cultures and cultural expressions. Um, so, for example, there are various sin lists, which is... <laughs> just a negative <laughs> phrase isn't it it doesn't sound like a happy bit of the bible to read but um bits like 1 corinthians 6 where it lists things um which are considered to be sinful all the time consistently throughout scripture um adultery sexual immorality drunkenness theft um but those never include things that we might consider to be cultural expressions like foot washing or again none of you offered to do that when you came in here today why is that but probably because it's a cultural expression rather than a moral thing. So some things are inherently moral and some things may be cultural expressions of something else that is a principle. Um, we'll get to this as we go in and I'll ground it 
a bit more. A, a third distinction to look for is uniformity versus difference. So when we come across a difficult test, we should ask ourselves, does the New Testament treat these things in a uniform way? For example, um, the principle of love. Um, I don't think that if you go through the New Testament, you'll find that most of the time it says to love people occasionally. It says, no, get, you, you can hate them. <laughs> like, I, I think there's a uniform teaching over the principle of love or the sinfulness of murder. Um, but there may be other things where there's different expressions. For example, eating food offered to idols, which we'll come to in a minute, or keeping or giving away your wealth. So, you know, you get some bits in Acts where they, they seem to give away everything, um, and yet other bits where they seem to still own possessions. There seems to be a difference there. Um, you've got to ask why. Uh, or church leadership structures. There may be differences over that, even as you look through Acts and then the letters. It seems to be that there may be differences perhaps there is not so much uniformity and maybe we shouldn't expect so much uniformity and then the fourth distinction is between principle and application i think it is possible for a writer to express an absolute principle with a relative application so they may some say something that is a principle that is absolutely timeless but the way in which they apply it to that immediate setting is not the timeless bit it's contextualized. So Paul may write something that is absolutely true for everyone, but the way in which he applies it to the specific people in Corinth is specific to them. And what we've got to do is work out what is absolute and timeless and what is culturally focused. Do you see what I mean? Should we ground it in an actual text? Yeah. Whew, here goes. Okay. <laughs> um, if you turn... To the next page. I'm going to try and ground this in a passage and I'm going to sit down because this is going to be hard. So, um, and I've chosen a difficult one, um, partly so that you don't have to do it in the exercises. Um, could someone read out, and you can read it from the text, just ignore the scribble bits around the sides. Um, could someone read out 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 13? Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and to whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to, emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Okay, so, show of hands, how many of you regularly go around your daily life thinking, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be in danger of eating idle meat today? <laughs> All right, no one. Okay, so, now at this point, you look at this text and you think, does this have anything at all to teach me? Yes, that's why we're looking at it today. <laughs> yes, it does. But how we actually get to what on earth this means to me is going to be quite a journey. And so, step one of the journey, you do the exegesis. You think, what did it mean to its original hearers? And this isn't the end of the story, actually. We're going to go on to chapter 10 as well, which then complicates it further. But let's start here for the moment. And um, I would probably do this a number of ways. Say I had read through 1 Corinthians, say I had done chapters 1 to 3 like we did earlier, I'd know a little bit about the Corinthians, maybe I'd read an introduction or a commentary or something or other, I know a bit more about the context, I'd feel like I'm building up a picture about them. Uh, I know there's quarrelling, I know there's division, I know that Paul seems to be writing to address a number of different questions, I know they think of themselves more spiritually um, discerning than Paul thinks that they are, I know there's loads of stuff about knowledge and wisdom, so I'd come to this and I'd see now, and I think ah, oh, okay, there seems to be a transition here. Um, Paul is transition from whatever came in chapter 7 um, and then I'd think well why is he now addressing this well knowing what I know about Corinthians it seems to be that maybe they've written to him and he is going back and answering particular questions they had maybe this is a particular question they had or maybe this is a particular thing that has caused division between them so he seems to be shifting to address this thing now about food sacrifice to idols what the heck is food sacrifice to idols like what is going on there so at this point i'm going to have to probably get out a commentary and read it um, and find out what was going on in this context why did paul write this particular thing and what i would do is i would uh, ask well how is it being sacrificed where is it being sacrificed why by whom what was the purpose all these sorts of things i'd read a commentary i'd read a couple of commentaries and um here you go little asterisk down the bottom this is what i would find uh, generally um actually it's one word in the greek idol food is probably the best way to put it um and it seems to be a term that only Christians used. Um, it's a polemical term, and it's a term that was used um, in quite a negative way. And it probably referred to, in fact, almost definitely referred to, meat that was sacrificed for pagan gods and served in the temple dining rooms, such as this place with an impronounceable name, um, accompanied by, which was a place in Corinth, um, accompanied by various rituals, for example, libations, so drinking rituals, um, and pagan worship. So I would read some historical context and I get the sense that people throughout history have done their research and their archaeology and they've determined that this happened and this is probably what Paul is talking about when he says about food sacrificed to idols. So then I'd carry on and I'd notice, oh, hang on a second, the word knowledge seems to pop up quite a lot here. And if you just look through, we know we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And, and it carries on all the way through the passage. Knowledge is a big deal. And then I think, oh, hang on, knowledge and wisdom seem to be a big deal earlier on in the, in the book as well. So this seems to be maybe an outworking of some of the principles that we saw in chapters one to three. So I'd just be alerted to that. And then I think, ah, oh, Paul seems to be making a distinction here between knowledge puffing up and love building up. So he's made some kind of contrast there between knowledge and love. And there's also a contrast not only of the items, but of the results as well. One is negative, one is positive. One puffs up, one builds up. So there's some kind of principle of love being better than knowledge there. And that's as much as I know at this point. So I'd carry on and I'd, again, notice all the knowledge stuff. And then I get to chapter four and he goes, so then. And you think, OK, 
he's, he's drilling into something very particular here about eating food sacrificed to idols. And he's gone more specific than he was earlier. So earlier he said, let me chat about idol food. And now he says, now eating idol food. So he's getting very specific at this point. We know, again, knowledge, that an idol is nothing at all in the world. How do we know that? Well, we know that because it says it in Isaiah 41, 24, which I didn't know off the top of my head. I looked at the footnote and I found it in the Old Testament and that's how I worked it out. And that there is no God but one, which is from Deuteronomy 4. And so he's appealing to scripture and things that the people should already have known. Um, and then he talks about these, these various things to do with gods um, and essentially saying there's only one God. Then verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. So not everyone knows the same thing about God and about idols that we do. Um, and some people think that when they're eating this food, it has not been sacrificed to a fake God who doesn't really exist. They think something different and their conscience is weak and so they get defiled. But the food does not bring us near to God. Paul's saying the food is actually irrelevant in itself. And at this point, this may spark in my mind questions about other passages like Mark 7, where Jesus talked about food. And so we'll come back to that in a minute because uh, I want to think about whole of scripture. But I'll, again, just put a pin on that. But Paul seems to think that the food itself is irrelevant. So then he goes on, verse 9, be careful that the exercise of your rights, so your rights to eat this food, because it's really irrelevant, like it's a matter of indifference, anyone can eat it, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. I think, well, why does he use the word weak there? Um, is this that Paul really thinks these people are weak? Or actually, as I look at the commentaries, they would probably suggest that chances are weak was a term that the Corinthians were using in a negative way about these people amongst them who are mm, these weak people. They don't eat the idle food. We're stronger than them. And so Paul is using their language in order to sort of undermine their preconceptions. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, <laughs> I think that's sarcastic. I think he's saying if one of these weak people, these people that you look down on, sees you with all your knowledge, I think there is a sarcastic tone to that. He's wanting to sort of trip them up a little bit. Eating in an idol's temple. Okay, so it's got more particular. Verse 1, it's about idol food generally. Verse 4, it's about eating food sacrificed to idols now it's about eating in an idol's temple won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols so this weak brother or sister for whom christ died you're like whoa where did that bit come from i think paul is wanting to make a point they are your brother they are your sister they are united with you christ died for them as much as for you if this person for whom christ died is destroyed man that is strong language, right? So he's talked about juxtaposition, death, Christ's death, and you destroying your brother. Um, he then talks in the next verse about you sinning against Christ. Like he's starting to really bring out the big guns here because he wants people to feel the strength of what is going on. Um, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. I can almost imagine him going, knowledge, <laughs> because what he's talking about here is knowledge badly applied knowledge without love which seems to be referring back to verse one so this weak brother is destroyed by your knowledge which allows you to eat this food so when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience you sin against christ therefore what is the therefore therefore it's there to say this is the culmination of his argument at least at this point if what i eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin i will never eat meat again so that i will not cause them to fall so I've gone through and I've had my red pen and I've looked at a commentary and I've done this way slower than I just did it to you now. Uh, but essentially I'm taking it apart and I'm trying to work out what is Paul's argument. And if I were to summarise it, I think I would say this. Paul told the Corinthians that idols aren't anything 
And so the food sacrificed to idols is of no real consequence. And so if people know this, then sure, there's no problem in eating idol food. But there is a principle that is stronger than knowledge, and that is the principle of love. And so if you exercise your knowledge, in inverted commas, in a way that leads others to contravene their conscience, something's gone wrong, and so you should withhold your rights for the good of others. And I think that's a fair summary of that passage. Yeah, so I think at this point he's definitely talking about Christians. And the reason I think that is because he calls them brother or sister, which seems to be a term for the family of Christ. But also he says, your brother or sister for whom Christ died. So I think at this point he's talking about the church, which incidentally means if we're trying to reconstruct what it might have looked like in Corinth, uh, we can imagine there were a whole bunch of people in this church, some of whom were eating idle meat, some of whom weren't, and this was causing a massive schism. So, yeah. Yeah. This is something that makes me think of in terms of a potential contrast somewhere else. Hmm. Is Jesus seemed to often do things that made people stumble culturally. So hmm. he might touch the dead or hmm. hang out with people who it seemed yeah. sinful to hang out with. Yeah. Without even necessarily explaining why he was doing that. It obviously was from a loving position. Yes. But it may have caused others to then go and do that or think it was okay to do yeah. that. Not yeah. knowing why. Yes, so then I guess we've got to um, uh, consider, at that point, um, did Jesus do things that were culturally specific and what's the timeless principle that would govern it all? Yeah, um, so let's hold that because I think that's a very good point. I think this is fairly uncontroversial, actually, what I've just done in terms of the summary of that passage. I think that's, that's pretty uncontroversial. Let's turn to the next page. <laughs> then what happens is uh, chapter 9. And um, I would read chapter 9 and, of course, I would uh, think, OK, the idle food stuff, that's done. That's dealt with. That's, that's, that's fine. And then chapter 9, Paul goes on a defence of his own apostleship. And in it, he argues um, that he had rights for financial support. Like he, he could say to the Corinthians, like, you should really pay for this and my time. Um, he was well within his rights to do so. But he gave up his rights for the good of the Corinthians. He didn't demand that they paid him. Um, and you think, okay, great, why is that there? <laughs> um, we're talking about food one minute and then you're talking about payment. Like, what, what's happening there? Um, and I would be asking myself, has he just changed tack because he's addressing a completely different question? Or is there a reason for this? And I might not know. But um, it's possible that it serves as an example of what he just said in 8, verse 9 and 13, which is that there is a principle better than knowledge, which is love, and that we should sacrifice our own rights for the good of others. And so I think, OK, maybe that's what is going on here. Maybe chapter 9 serves as an illustration. Then chapter 10 begins, and you've got 1 to 13, which tells all these stories from Israel's past, um, where they did all these things that were... Uh, idolatrous and um, and it says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages had come so crossing the river we're now in the new covenant as opposed to these people who are in the old covenant and they were written down as a warning to us essentially so that we don't go and do the same things and so Paul seems to have taken a bit of a diversion. Um, he's talked about the whole of Israel's past and the ways that they gave in to idolatry. And he said, these things are written there so that we don't do the same things. Many of them were idolaters, eating, drinking, doing sexual immorality, all these sorts of things. And we're not meant to do the same. 
So that's chapter 9 to 10, 13. Then we get 10, 14. Would someone read 14 to 22 for me, please? In fact, actually, could someone read 10, to thir- uh, 10 14 to 31, which comes on the next page? Therefore, my dear Actually, can you read 10, <laughs> 14 to chapter 15? No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, just read all that I've printed. So up to verse 33. Yeah. On the next, yeah. so this page and the next page. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we gave thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than... Let's just pause there really briefly. Uh, Does this feel completely consistent with what we read in chapter 8? No. Does it make it a little bit more tricky? (laughs) Yeah, so chapter 8 is like, you know, this, these idols are nothing. It's fine, you can eat it if you want. I mean, don't, if it causes someone else a problem. Now it's like, demons. <laughs> like, uh, this is offered to demons, don't, don't go near it. <laughs> you know, oh, hang on a second, what? What? <laughs> yeah, let's carry on. Verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to eat, invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. (laughs) Intense. All right, here we go. So, verse 14, 
therefore. What is a therefore, therefore? Um, you need to look back at what's just happened. 10, 1 to 13 talks about stuff from Israel's past. And then he goes from this story of things that happened centuries ago to therefore. So he's linking the two. There's something about Israel's past which is written down for our warning so that we won't do the same thing. And then he goes, therefore, and he brings it right back to the example from chapter 8, the eating of idol food. And then he says, my dear friends. And you get a sense that He's not saying, you annoying Corinthians who are divided over this issue. He's like, dear friends, he cares passionately about them. Remember 8 verse 1, he's talking about knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the principle of love is so important for Paul that even these people who maybe are really antagonistic towards him, he addresses them as brothers, sisters, dear friends and family. And then he says this, flee from idolatry. And you get a sense that that is a timeless principle. That is a principle that can be applied in any situation. What it looks like in any situation will look different, but that is a timeless principle that crosses ages, crosses boundaries, uh, crosses cultures, crosses time, crosses geography. That is a principle that applies. And we know it applies because 10, 1 to 13, we've seen that that was the issue there. The people were giving in to idolatry and that was a warning so that we don't do the same. So this timeless principle is that we should flee from idolatry. He then says, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves. And I think he's appealing again to their love of wisdom, um, which he's talked about since chapter 1, 2, and 3 of, of Corinthians. And actually in chapter 2, remember, we talked about those who have the spirit get to judge things, all right? You, you have this discernment. So then he's appealing to them as sensible people and saying, you can judge, judge for yourself. He's appealing to their uh, the spirit-guided nature, I suppose, and saying, you as people who are wise, who understand the scriptures and who have the spirit of God living within you, make a wise decision here. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And then as I read through the verse, I'm like, wow, he uses that word a lot. Participation in the blood of Christ. The bread we break is participation in the body of Christ. And then he talks about those who eat the sacrifices, participates in the altar. And it's not clear whether it's a positive or negative altar there. But then he says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part, which is similar, in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So participation seems to be a key thing for him. And then he goes on and he's talking about this very particular situation in which they are eating things that are offered to demons, which is really confusing because in chapter 8 he's essentially said that idols are nothing and now he seems to be saying oh, it's something and it's not a good something. Like, so what is going on there? So then I might need to think about well, how is idolatry talked about in the rest of scripture and I might read a commentary on it or I might look at footnotes and go to various passages and if I were to go for for example, Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 40 and 55, I would find that the biblical writers are often able to talk about idols in a way that says, well, they really are nothing because there are no other gods but this God who is one. But when you worship these things, you are opening yourself up to false worship, which is at its heart demonic, which means opposed to God. So scripture right through is able to talk about idols as if they are nothing really, but they're more than nothing because what they represent is an, a demonic uh, approach to worship is worshiping things that do not deserve to be worshipped so it's both and and then essentially Paul is saying here that eating idol food is tantamount to worshiping demons but in 8 1 to 13 he said that eating the food is nothing and in the next page, he's about to permit it in circum certain circumstances. So something way more complicated is going on. Does he actually have the same circumstances in mind here as he did in chapter 8? I think he probably didn't. 
And as I was reading commentaries, I might come across uh, Ben Witherington III, who has a spectacular name and, um, uh, uh, well, quite a poncy name, actually. But there we go. He, uh, he often, like, he writes these really dense commentaries and then just has a little phrase which he throws out, which he, I, I imagine him writing and just chuckling to himself. And he says, uh, and he says, maybe this is an issue of menu, not venue. <laughs> and uh, I think, ah, oh, maybe he's onto something here. Maybe he has something in mind... Um, that is less to do with the food itself, because he said in chapter 8, the food is nothing, and it's more to do with the venue in which you're eating. Actually, I don't think menu and venue is quite right. I think it's more to do with different scenarios or contexts. And so then I'm looking at this and thinking, well, maybe here he's talking about a different scenario to what he talked about in uh, the early bit and what he goes on to talk about here. So... Here he is saying that essentially, if we participate in this worship, um, in, the, in the eating, in the context of um, worship, if we participate in the actual worship of false idols, we are opening ourselves up to something demonic, which is a bad thing to do. Over to the next page. Verse 23. Is this all making sense? I mean, I know it's ridiculously complex, so it's probably not making sense, but you're, you're following me at least, yeah? You missed it. Okay, yeah. So, um, so what? I, so, um, Paul has said in chapter eight, it's nothing. It's fine. Um, and now he said, it's to do with eating. You know, it's, it's to do with worshiping demons. And you think, well, that's not fine. So something's going on. But then in the next verses, so the verses we're going to look now, he seems to permit it. So he's both permitted it in chapter eight, permits it in these verses, but then also says it's demonic here. So, so maybe there's some kind of distinction going on. Um, where he imagines in certain circumstances it's okay, in certain circumstances it's not. Um, so now we're going to see the, cir the circumstances where he thinks it is okay and where it's not okay. So, Verse 23, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Now, it seems to be that here um, there is a claim from the Corinthians and Paul's response, which he then says a second time. And, and chances are this might have come from a letter. It may be that they wrote this letter um, or he's heard that they say this. And so he's quoting their words against them um, and commenting on them. And then he says, verse 24, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. That, again, feels like a timeless principle. It feels like he's saying, not just, hey, you Corinthians, maybe you should think about others. He's saying that, actually, because of this principle of love, this seems to be a timeless thing. None of us should do this. And in fact, if you go forward to verse 33, he says, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. And if you think back to chapter 9, which we didn't read, Paul didn't exert his rights for the good of the Corinthians. He seemed to lay down his rights for the good of others. So it seems to be that he is stating some kind of timeless principle here. Again, put a pin in that. Think about it. Then he says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. How can you eat anything sold in the meat market if eating this meat is tantamount to worshipping demons? What is going on? Well, then he quotes Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God. So it seems to be that he has a different scenario in mind here. He's talked about eating it in the temple accompanied by the other rituals, which is tantamount to worshipping demons. Now he's talking about eating it in the meat market and that seems okay. And then he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you think, okay, this is a different scenario. 
scenario three. And you want to go, which I like actually, um, if someone invites you to dinner and you're not really keen on it, like, <laughs> I'm washing my hair, I, uh, oh no, I don't eat idle food. <laughs> Just imagine like next time you get invited to a party, oh, I'd love to, but idle food. <laughs> oh, <I can't>. um, <laughs> coming to your party, it's kind of the same as worshipping demons. I'm not, yeah. um, I'm not sure that's what he's saying, but he's saying if, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, Notice specifically about an unbeliever here. Um, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So scenario three. But maybe he's opening up another scenario. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. So it's like, oh man, come on, I need a chick, <laughs> like a tick list. Uh, so I go in, I'm like, can I eat this one? Yes, I can. Like, it seems to be that he's taking this principle or these principles and then applying them in a load of different ways in order to say this is faithful outworking of the principle in this scenario. This is what it's like in this scenario. This is what it's like in this scenario. He says, in this case, don't eat it, both for the sake of what the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, which is quite <laughs> vague, for conscience sake. But then he clarifies it. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another person's conscience? If you know idle food's nothing, it doesn't affect you. But because of something to do with their conscience, you should not eat the food. Why is that? Well, it seems to be that maybe he thinks that my eating the food, which is a matter of indifference to me, it doesn't matter to me in the slightest, might have an effect on them and their openness to the gospel or, or, or something. So again, the principle of love uh, is more important than the principle of using my own rights. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God... Uh, even as I try and please everyone. So he's talked about Jews, Greeks, the church, and everyone. So he's talking here about everybody. I mean, he's made it about as clear as he possibly can. Jews, Greeks is often a term for basically non-Jews, not just people from Greece. Um, Jews, Greeks, the church, so believers and unbelievers. And then, in case you haven't got it, everyone. <laughs> so everyone, for the sake of everyone, um, do not cause people to stumble. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So I've basically, at this point, raised a whole load of questions for myself, um, noted a whole load of things, got a few bits. I'm like, I think that's a timeless principle applied in different situations over here. Now how on earth do I pull this all together and make it make sense? Let's take a break. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, next page. Remember the steps of the interpretive journey. Step one, grasp the text in their world. This is the hard work of exegesis, going through, really wrestling with it, trying to work out what it meant originally. And if I were to summarise the passage in a sentence, well, that would be impossible, but if I were to try and summarise it in a few paragraphs, past tense, this is what I would say. Paul argued that idols are not gods, so there's no inherent problem in eating the food itself. Paul forbade eating idolatrous meals in pagan temples because, one, the sacrifices are demonic, worshipping false gods, so taking part in the sacrificial meals is tantamount to partnering with demons. And I think I'd qualify that and say it can't be because of the food itself, because the food's nothing. There's something about the act of worship, the participating in that, that means that you're somehow um, uh, tied into essentially first worshipping false gods and demonic activity. And two, if you were to do that, it could cause other believers to stumble. So again, this is 
not thinking about application. This is just trying to think, what is Paul saying here? But then thirdly, Paul did not object to eating food that had been previously sacrificed if you bought it in the market or if you were served it in a private home. So there are scenarios where it's okay to eat it unless it would offend someone else's conscience or cause them to think that you were condoning or taking part in the sacrifice. So that, I think, is my summary I would have taken a long time to get to, I did take a long time to get to, um, of what I think Paul is saying in those chapters. I think that's a fair summary, but I would because I've just presented it to you. Um, but that's it. And I think at that point, there would be differences over the details, but I think that's a fairly uncontroversial summary because we haven't yet moved to application. Are you with me? Do you see that that is a summary of the passage? Yeah. Are you not convinced or you have a question? Or... I have a question. So would this be a little bit of like ignorance? Is bliss kind of <laughs> don't, don't, ask, don't ask, don't tell. Which no, you have a particular political conversation where you're from. Christ, I just eat it freely. Mm. But if someone mentions it, you know, they're doing it. So... Sure. Yeah, and so then you've got to ask, well, why is it that... Why is it that the mentioning of it takes you into a different scenario and I think it's because then at that point you're okay, but it still doesn't say it's for your benefit it's for the person who said it exactly yes so food is nothing it's not nothing but it's, it's not, in, in terms of making you unclean um, so if I eat it it's not going to do me any harm but what it might do is affect the other person's conscience because it might make them think I'm fine with pa- with worshiping demons, with worshiping any gods, with this pagan. Yeah, exactly, and which undermines the gospel, which may actually make them misunderstand the gospel and therefore not come into relationship with God. So it's the issue is still not to do with what's making me unclean at this point. Uh, there is a scenario in which I become unclean, which is if I go to the temple and I'm like, yeah, I worshipped Jesus yesterday, but today I'm going to worship Baal or whatever it happens to be. Um, but in that scenario, it's to do with their conscience. Yeah. Is it, is it not to do with your conscience in terms of you participate in worship? I mean, this is actually quite a practical example for me because my grandparents are Malaysian. Yes. They fully follow ancestral worship. Yeah. So there are a lot of physical idols and food dedicated to them mm. around the house. Great. So let's i've cut you off but i've cut you off because you this is box two let's measure the width of the river to cross i imagine most of us in this room are like this river is like mahusive like the gap between that and my world is enormous and you're like the gap's quite small for you because even though we live in the same situation our family situation our heritage our the practices of our our friends um even back home, but conceivably here, you know, if your family lived here. We're geographically very close to one another, but the river between me and this passage and you and this passage may be different. Yeah. So that's really important to notice. So, um, and we'll come to the application and I'll tell you what you should do next time your family invite you around for dinner. Um, But what are the differences between our worlds and how big is the gap? Well, um, we don't have that many pagan temples around. Possibly, though we may want to question that. We may say, actually, there are certain pagan temples. Um, But there aren't many uh, circumstances in which I find myself confronted by animal sacrifice on a daily basis, or particularly sacrifice um, 
because I mean, I could go to my abattoir, and in one sense, there's sacrifice there, there's you know, the death of animals, but it's not necessarily linked to worship. Um, and so I'm not regularly being confronted by this situation in the way that you are. So it's worth noticing, and there may be others in your situation as well, um, it's worth noticing that the river is different for me and for you. Um, but for either of us, there are, sig- there are serious differences, aren't they, between us and there? Yeah? Just a slight kind of point. So he's kind of saying there is demonic activity behind these foods and worship. And mm-hmm. So he assumes and he says that he's clear on that, that even if you are there, you know, you're not influenced by this activity. So that's based that you are kind of protected by the Holy Spirit. Or on, ah. the basis, on what basis you are not influenced if there is demonic, demonic activity all around and you are there in the middle? Ah, but I don't think that is what he's saying. I think that he's saying if you're eating it in a, a market, that's one thing. No, you see, I think he is saying that... No, you see, I think he's saying the opposite of that. I think he is saying that that is the scenario in which you are affected because um, verse, in 10 verses... Um, Uh, 18, do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar? Um, uh, Do I mean that the food is anything or the idol is anything? Well, no. So the food itself is not making you unclean. What is making me unclean in that situation is the fact that I am participating in, uh, in worship of another god. So again, yeah, the food is not making you unclean, but the way in which I am eating the food, the setting in which I'm eating the food is making me unclean. And I think he is saying that you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too, and that if you uh, participate both in going to church on a Sunday, or whatever the equivalent was there, and then going to the temple there, yeah, then I I think he's saying you are actually participating in demonic activity. But that's not the same as if you eat it from a a market or a friend's house. So. Sorry? The street vendor. The street vendor, yeah, a kebab van. <laughs> it's slightly different. So, so let's, that's grasping the text in our world. That's measuring the width of the river. We've not yet worked out how to actually cross the river. Um, but now we need to write out the theological principle or principles and do it in present tense. And I think the principles that are fairly clear here are Christians cannot worship God and worship demons. Agreed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of you... I quite like doing both. (laughs) I I think that's what Paul is saying here. Now, we've got questions about what that actually looks like, um, but I think we can agree on that. We must flee idolatry. That's a timeless principle. I think that's what Paul is saying. Certain practices are matters of indifference, and our conscience may allow us to participate in them. I think Paul acknowledges that here. Like It's nothing to you, but actually some people's conscience, if they're of a weak conscience, they may struggle with that a bit more. So there's a principle there about conscience. But we should seek the good of others over our own good, both those who are believers and those who are not. And we should not exercise our own freedom if it causes others to stumble. And so what we've not got to at the moment is application, but what we have got to is the way that we're going to get across the bridge, the way that we're going to get across the river and make this suddenly applicable to our world. And do you see that all those principles are there in the text? They're not things I've just plucked out from thin air. Some of them are literally written in that text. And they are, I think, the solution to how we're going to get to application, which we're now not going to do until after lunch, which means that if you go out, you have a choice (laughs) over whether the food you choose to eat today may be sacrificed to demons. And if you find a vendor there who's like, oh, by the way, <laughs> I slaughtered this to Baal this morning uh, in Pret, then... Um, <laughs> uh, 
If you don't ask, it's okay. If they tell you... Yeah, I see, I might have gone into prep this morning and said, like, about quarter to one, a bunch of people are going to come in. Just tell them, by the way, here's our new range of demon food. Like, um, I didn't, but um, we're going to get to application, and we're going to get to application of this and more broadly, and I'm really looking forward to figuring out how we work this out very practically. Um, are you with me so far? Yes. yes. It's an unsatisfactory place to end, but um, do you have one, a question, Stephanie? Really quick one. Yeah, go for it. Yes. The reason I'm nervous and the reason I push back against your point, which is similar, is that um, what you could do with that point is then go, nothing can really touch us, everything is okay, which is absolutely not what Paul is saying. That there are certain things that can make you defiled. Um, uh, it's just the question is, is food one of them? And I think that Paul is saying here, and then we'll come to this in the next section, really, um, that food is, is, is not going to make you dirty, but the way in which you eat it might do. By which I don't mean whether you wash your hands. I mean, like, the, the, way, the way, the other things that are surrounded by it and what it implies. And I think the things that it implies can corrupt you, whereas the food itself doesn't. And at that point, I think, has Scripture said anything else about food? And then a few verses come to mind, and I think, yes, after lunch, I need to tackle those. <laughs> so, yeah, Rowan. Something that brings to mind to me, and this can also be twisted and taken too far, mm. but it's the concept that an element of sin is about your conscience, mm. why you're doing the thing, mm. as much as yeah. the thing that's being done. Yeah. Are, you, do you, are you deliberately thinking that you're disobeying God, or sure. knowing that you're disobeying God? Or mm. not? And I know that's not all sin, but... Mm. It's an element, maybe, that yeah. Paul speaks of. That's why I have read into it at times. I don't know what you think about that. So that it's not just the act, but it's the heart behind the act. Yes. So if you're eating yes. the food and you, you don't think it means anything, you don't think that it has power, that mm. there's anything behind it, mm. you're not kind of sinning. But if you're eating it and thinking, I am doing this for another God, it brings... The sin is kind of yes. So, like, like you say, it's easy to take that to extremes, isn't it? But, extreme, yeah. but I think that we can get there from this passage and from other passages as well, because um, because essentially in chapter eight, he's like, the food's nothing, guys. Like, mm -hmm. this is a matter of indifference. It really doesn't matter. And so, actually, the people who have weak conscience, so they think this food is going to corrupt me. Um, if they then eat the food, what is it that corrupts them? Mm -hmm. It's not technically the food itself, because the food is nothing. We know that. Um, it's something else. It may be the fact that they now think it's appropriate to, mm. to both worship God and worship demons. And it's that, it's the reason behind it um, that is the corrupting thing. Yeah. And the, we, the principle that I had mm. also links to where Paul talks about the law. We're more sinful mm. the more we know almost sure. about the law mm. because it, we know we're doing it wrong. We know we're doing sure. it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, as I said, that can be twisted to a large extent, but mm. I think there's an element there. 
Yes, and the, one of the ways it can be twisted is like, don't see, don't, don't, don't ask, don't tell. Like, I'm never going to read the Bible because then if I read the Bible, I'll find out things I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. But I think there is a sense in which we're, we're treating this quite academically here, but, you know, God is so gracious with us mm. and he is so patient with us. And there are things that I probably did for years and then was suddenly like, oh, my word, I didn't realise that was an issue. And mm. now I feel remorseful. I regret having done those things and I won't do them now. And it may take me a while to change because I'm stuck in, you know, whatever habits. Are. But God is so gracious and he does lead us to repentance over time and he works with us um, but yeah, if people, I, like I remember someone literally saying to me once, I, I don't read the Bible because then I can't be held to account for what is in it. And I'm like, yeah, I think you've got other issues there. <laughs> um, uh, were there two more questions and then we will break for, for uh, idle free lunch. Um, yeah, you first. Um, so um, this process mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 there's a, there's a very... Yeah. Is, is, if, we, if we trust this process, do we come to these similar conclusions? No. Or do you see other people going through this process and we different Yeah, no, definitely, because um, other people will read it and get it wrong uh, and they won't see it like I do. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and no, absolutely, definitely. And, and so I think um, there you've got to ask the question, well, what's... Why have we arrived at different conclusions? And it could be because we've gone wrong at, at one of the different stages. So it could be that we've read the text entirely differently because I have a different understanding of what this meant to the Corinthians, to what this other person thought. So I, I might think I know something about Corinth and I know something about the way that pagan rituals were done. And so that makes me read it another way. Other scholars may disagree over that and say, well, actually, the archaeological evidence I've looked at suggests that maybe they did this and this and this. And then one of us may just have incomplete knowledge or we differ over the details. And so it's our exegesis that has made us have a different starting point. Um, so at that point, the way we resolve that is we have to really get into the grips of what did this actually mean. Um, but it may be that we're just operating from different hermeneutical principles. So the bridges that we're crossing, someone may question um, the idea that um, uh, that food can't corrupt you. And the reason they may do that is because they've got a presupposition, um, or it may be that they want to pull out a passage like Acts 15, which um, I've kept quiet about right up to now, but we will come back to after um, after lunch. And they may say, you know, there's a principle in Acts 15 that means that we're our hermeneutics are different. So, um, so we, we've got to trace back and see where has the division come in order to work out how to rectify it. Wait, what's that, 615? That... We'll come to that after lunch. But it's a passage that uh, makes this a little bit more difficult, even still, <laughs> if you thought it was getting easy. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But, um, but so if I'm approaching this, um, trying to figure it out, so I don't just hear one theologian, like I'm, I'm probably going to sit there with five different commentaries, personally, and put them alongside each other and try and work out the merits, the strengths and weaknesses of them. Or I'm going, if I only have time for one commentary, I'm going to want to pick one that is going to lay out all the options for me and, um, and give me the best arguments for each. Um, so yes, what I, what I said up to now, uh, people would contest. Um, but I think they're less likely to contest 
0.1. And actually, they're probably not that likely to cross to contest 0.3, but 0.4, which we're going to come to, the way that things get applied, maybe that's where the, the biggest um, yeah, challenges will come. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.